0: Hello everyone, welcome to our third episode for Radio Edict. Thank you for engaging with us more and more every episode. In today's episode, we have with ourselves Neha Dixit. She's an independent journalist and she covers issues of politics, social justice, among many, many others. She's been awarded the Press Freedom Award in 2019 and the One Young World Journalist of the Year Award in 2020. Thank you so much for coming, Neha. Also, congratulations for these awards. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about yourself and about the awards themselves?
1: Okay, thank you so much, Sanya. Um, So like you said, I'm an independent journalist. I've been working for 13 years now, uh, mostly uh, working on investigative stories around politics, gender and social justice in South Asia. So that's what I essentially do. I've been, I have reported both nationally and internationally and across mediums, So, which means that I've also reported for television. And now I'm back to uh, writing long-form stories. Uh, I've reported for Al Jazeera, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, amongst the other international publications. And uh, in India, I mostly write for Caravan, uh, Wires, Troll, and News Laundry. Uh, Although I do have to say that I do enjoy uh, writing and reporting for Indian publications more than the international ones because there is more scope to go in-depth and uh, and get into the various layers of an issue that one is reporting and writing about. So that is what I like to do.
0: Right. One thing that I'd like to ask you is that when you report for, uh, say, international publications and you have to cover something like caste, which is very... Intrinsic to India, and a lot of people outside might not understand it. How do you navigate
1: that space? Uh, so uh, that's a that's a very important question, Sanya, because I, as a journalist and particularly as a reporter, because I do write like. And I am a very staunch supporter of ground reporting rather than uh, opinion yeah. pieces, especially because we're in a post-truth world and it's just so difficult to make people understand that there is a difference between fact and opinion. And we're all dealing with it personally and professionally and politically. Uh, uh, with international publications, that's why I said it's so mo- so much more difficult to actually get explore any kind of layers or nuances in a ground report. And when it comes to caste or when it comes to, say, the Bahujan communities or the Adivasi communities, it's just very difficult to explain the context uh, to an international reader. And when I say international reader, I'm, I'm talking about the Western media and not the other parts. Also, it, it, it's very difficult because they uh, have a very set formulaic way of reporting from the developing world that includes India. Right. Yeah. So anything that goes beyond that formula is uh, a little difficult. So I'll give you an example. For example.
0: Um, I'm sorry. Like I lost your last sentence there.
1: So I would give an example. For example, I had done a story for the New York Times India blog in 2014 or 2015. I'm not very clear about which year that was. But there was a, uh, there was, there was this, gang rape of four women in Haryana, in Hisar uh, district, which is very close to the Ashoka campus in in some way, like uh, just almost 60, 70 kilometers away from the campus. So where these four Dalit girls were gang raped by Jat men in the village. So they had the girls to relieve themselves in the field. And that's when the Jat men caught hold of them and they were raped. So the entire conversation uh, became about how there are no toilets and that's why women are getting raped. And that was such an unfortunate thing because when I actually went to the village, I found out that because the Dalit community had staked claim on the government land and the Jat community was, it was beyond their, uh, what do you say, it challenged their hierarchy in the system of things. They were not ready to give the Dalit community the land that, was rightfully owed to them they tried to teach them a lesson by raping the girls so that was the that was the sequence of events but because the international media does want to look at the developing world in, a, in stereotypes yeah. narrative for them to say oh the developing world does not have toilets and that's why women are getting raped instead of looking at the fine nuances and the various caste and class conflicts on the ground within the communities that uh, lead to these kind of situations. So then it just uh, becomes very difficult. So one, from each story to the other, one has to keep arguing and one has to keep pushing uh, for more nuance in the international pieces. And which is why uh, the scope to actually tell a story and to tell a story with all, its, uh, all the due uh, credit that it requires and the due interest that it requires, it's very difficult to do that in international publications. I think so.
0: Right. And like, I would say that this, there's this sort of tussle even in domestic um, publications, right? Like a, a reporter may feel for an issue that editors don't necessarily want to cover or cover in one certain way.
1: Well, I would say, uh, I mean, yes, Sanya, in a way that there is a lot of uh, reluctance in the mainstream news media model now because the revenue model is such that they don't want enough reporters to actually go on the ground and do any fact-based, evidence-based report. Hmm. Uh, And so that the reluctance comes from there. And of course, the censorship within the news organizations has increased. So which is why they only want to do certain stories that do not evoke any kind of resistance from the government or the wrath of the government so that has increased and apart from that like I said earlier that uh, uh, now a lot of times editors get in touch to say that oh why don't you write a quick opinion piece of 500 words on something that has happened or thousand words and I do feel that that is the reason why we have we are now in a world where we only think of things in binaries. Where the opinion is for or against and that's the kind of opinion journalism that has taken over any kind of other journalism that can exist, right? And which is why it's any kind of, uh, what do you say, value to fact, to evidence, to sequence of events, event to history, to anthropology. There is complete dismissal of any of this and everything is overpowered by what people believe or have come to believe because of the kind of opinion that is that they are uh, surrounded with so yes it does happen
0: and there's also like a certain amount of self-censorship right like even if someone externally isn't telling you that you can't do this and you can't cover this like a lot of people just won't cover something
1: because it's not quote-unquote newsworthy yeah i mean it has to be looked at in the larger context in the sense that Uh, Let's just look at it this way. In the last five months, uh, uh, almost a thousand journalists have been fired because of the COVID pandemic and the lockdown. Uh, And uh, coupled with that, because in the last six years, the kind of government that we have, there is a lot of, uh, what do you say, The government does come down heavily on anybody who does criticize, whether it's individual journalists who are dealing with criminal cases and going to the court or facing death threats, rape threats, uh, facing physical attacks while reporting. But at the same time, yes, news organizations themselves also do not want to publish certain kinds of stories. So within newsrooms, there are standard instructions of not publishing certain kinds of stories on the front page. So like you said yes self censorship is there, which is which is being practiced by media organizations instead of the government coming up uh, coming up coming out with a rule or set of uh, things that the media organizations cannot write and that is I think more uh, what do you say uh, insidious <laughs> rather than having a clear set of things saying, okay, this is what you can report in this so it's a very it's a, all a very gray area and helps people be delusional that of course we are in a democracy and we can do anything but it's actually worse than the emergency era in that way for the freedom of press right
0: um so with the problems that you mentioned like what is like your personal experience been like not just as a journalist but especially an independent journalist as someone who's based out of Delhi also as a woman journalist like what is your experience been and what are some of the Changes or some of the trends that you've seen in your 13 years of reporting?
1: Mm. Uh, see, so for example, I would say, like, uh, first of all, my experience in the last uh, 13 years, I've seen in a way, I, at least now I can say that I've seen things change uh, in a way that, like, if I talk about it as a woman journalist, there was a time when I, when, I, when I joined journalism, there wasn't much scope to talk about sexual harassment within workplaces and a lot of us um, were repeatedly subjected to some kind of, uh, uh, what do you say, harassment, some kind of sexism at workplace. And there was no scope to talk about it. So for instance, the moment you would complain about a male editor being uh, inappropriate in the kind of language they're using or the kind of physical contact they're trying to make with you, uh, people would call you uh, very prude and uh, would almost outcast you as thinking that, oh, you're so conventional and you're so uh, prude that you can't be in a free atmosphere. So it was, it would, the tables would turn against the person who would face this kind of sexism at workplace. So in the last 13 years, I've seen that change. And particularly in October 2018, when so many testimonials by women journalists in the media came out. And I'm glad they did. So that way, I've seen uh, things change. Uh, As a woman journalist, also, one had to keep pretending that while going on the field, going on the ground, doing a long investigative report, If you were facing any kinds of problems, as a woman journalist, you couldn't come back and say that because often those things would be used against you. And next time you wouldn't be sent out for a good political story or a good hard news story that you really want to pursue. So it was often used against you. So the pressure was more on women to keep keep proving to be like almost like super women and to be able to deal with every single problem without saying a word about it. Thankfully, there is more scope to talk about it now, at least. I don't know if much is being done or any, uh, what do you say, quantifiable impact has happened, quantifiable change Mm. has happened. But at least there is more scope and space to address that there are these challenges. Uh, Apart from that, also as a journalist, I would say that, see, at a time when I started, it's not like I said, it's not like earlier there weren't any cases against uh, journalist. I mean, we were all to- told by our editors when I joined, I remember my editor would say that each time you receive a lo- legal notice, it's a, it's a badge of honor because <laughs> that means somebody is reading your story somewhere and it has had hurt people in some way and that has had an impact. But what has changed in the last say six, six and a half years since under this present government is that they have also started filing criminal cases against journalists and that is a pattern that they've been following so what they don't file like your usual freedom of expression or defamation sort of cases but they file criminal law and order related cases and that has become very difficult for journalists especially to uh, to deal with because what happens is the moment it becomes it becomes a criminal issue the the legal procedures become all the more complicated uh, the kind of support that you're supposed to get as a press freedom issue, you do not get it because most people are reluctant to step into um, taking sides in a criminal case. So that that uh, has happened quite a bit. And apart from that, uh, we would, I remember in 2008, I had done this uh, investigative story on in the Kha Panchayats in Haryana and that was the first, I mean, in 2008, I think that was one of the first stories to talk about what Karp and Chats were doing. And I do remember them, uh, you know, threatening me while I was reporting. When the story was out, there were all these conversations. At that point, there used to be these forums, online forums, where they would discuss uh, how I should be beaten black and blue and stuff like that. It did happen. But what has happened in the last six years is that this kind of trolling, even online, has become more organized. Okay. And I would say that uh, to, to the point that it's, it's so unfortunate that in my mind it does not even register any longer, even though, even till date, every day three, there are 300 and 400 messages or notifications I get with uh, graphic details of how I should be raped or how I should be, uh, you know, killed or how my family members, what should be done to them. To the point that I don't even register any longer, but I do see that how this online trolling, does kind of convert in physical threats offline so a lot of us have been facing a lot of threats reporting while reporting so there have been instances when RSS people when other people have physically stopped and tried to um, physically attack and that uh, has increased because they know that they enjoy impunity because of being close to the people in power and which is why the police is not going to act. So that, that has really made things worse.
0: Right. Um, and yeah, like, it's quite sad that, like, that, that you're not affected by these threats anymore. Um. it's just that it's become so normalized. I'm sorry, that kind of caught me off guard.
1: <laughs> but, but, no, but also, the thing is, what does one do? Either you stop doing your work and keep, because there is no, uh, neither the online platforms want to do anything about it, nor the government wants to do, do anything about it because it is hand in glove. So either one just keeps paying attention to it or just create a blinker and create a block in one's head and carry on forward with the work because there is no other way to be. Right.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um. I would also like to ask from the other side, like, when you're reporting and the people you're reporting about have you seen a shift in issues over over this time that you've been reporting or oh, in caste issues or in gender issues like not just from the journalist perspective but also some from the perspective of say someone who's been reported about uh see i
1: so for instance i'll tell you like uh before 2012 because 2012 december was the time when we saw an anti-rape movement in yeah. India, which was so public. Yeah. Before that, each time, so I am I'm, I'm speaking both as a journalist as a and as a woman. Yeah. Uh, before that, you would hardly see any stories about sexual violence in news organizations. And even if it would be there in a newspaper, it would be like a small 50 word column. Uh, so it wasn't seen something like I like It was so normalized that there was no scope to report about it. So after 2012, I'm glad, both as a journalist and as a woman, that at least there is space now and news organizations are conscious of the fact that they need to report about gender. Even though it may be very skewed still because it only stops at violence and uh, reproductive rights, but at least there is that. Uh, With caste... Uh, thankfully there is more awareness we, we increasingly have more and more studies at least as reference, point, reference points to see how upper caste heavy this all Indian news organizations are and uh, so both in terms of representation and even in terms of coverage the only kind of coverage that is done around caste is atrocities and crime and not really issues of social justice and rights based approach So, but still it has changed from how it was to now. Right. Um, yeah, and
0: then we talked about these things, but I wanna talk about two big things that stand out to me. Also, I'm sitting in Delhi, so I might be ignoring a couple of things. But two things that stand out to me before the pandemic are the protests and the Delhi riots. And like what do you think about both? TV news coverage, but also other kinds of coverage that surrounded these events. And also, I like your comment about um, those responses to anti-CAA protests, which were for CAA rallies. And that's just something that I found really peculiar because they weren't even protesting against something because, I mean, they were for um, the act. But yeah, what's your
1: opinion on the coverage of these issues? If one looks at the mainstream media and the kind of way, uh, the, the manner in which the CA protests were covered, particularly by television media, it was very, uh, what do you say, it was very embarrassing to say as a journalist because uh, you could clearly see, see the slant there. You could see that how there was, like I said earlier also, you could see that Things were not being debated on the basis of uh, what is being uh, protested against, what are the demands, what are the loopholes in this proposed bill which be- later became an Act, what are the various uh, things that, that uh, make it so exclusive of everybody, of particularly the Muslim community. Right. There was there was no conversation about it. Instead, all news organizations, and I'm saying all right now, whether it's on the right side of the spectrum or the left side of the spectrum, hmm. everybody just uh, rode on opinions, and which is why when when the same model is uh, followed by television media, it becomes worse to the point of being intolerable, and which is why you it, it from protests in december 2019 till date you see that news organizations go are going on and on about this jihad or that jihad or that jihad to the point that when the police entered the jamia university and attacked the library the way the students were made to were paraded on the road there was no condemnation for, for something like this in the world's largest democracy in yeah. fact uh, they They tried to villainize them. they tried to use their uh, uh, you know community to cast aspersions on their uh, what do you say allegiance to the state to the to the Indian state. so all of these things were done so it was almost uh, uh, what do you say playing to the majoritarian sentiment and adding to that the corporate political nexus was clearly apparent in the way news organizations television news organizations were covering it and and the fact that Till date, uh, even after the the pandemic was used by the government to actually go after people who were part of these protests and uh, they have been arrested. So many people of them, so many uh, activists from the civil society. Apart from that, people who uh, were affected in the Delhi riots continue to not get any compensation, continue to not uh, uh, get any uh, hearing in the court. Instead, they are being penalized by the police. But the media is nowhere covering all of this. The media is not holding any kind of independent debate about this, but what we are talking about, they have completely, while while this was happening and there was some kind of attention, international attention that came to the CAA protest or the way the Indian government were dealing with the protesters. immediately after the pandemic they tried to change it to different things and now to the point that we are only obsessed with an actor's death for the last two, two and a half months. And as if there's nothing more important in this country, as if nobody else has died in this country, as if uh, people are not suffering with COVID, as if the economy is not you know uh, going down a rabbit hole. There is no conversation. So I am just saying that whatever the media is doing, it's part of the propaganda machinery of the mass media, where media channels are not just doing it for any immediate yeah, profit, but also are hand in glove in a larger propaganda in of a majoritarian politics that is currently uh, that has currently engulfed the entire country.
0: Right, and to an extent, you would say that TV news media is is basically now a distracting force rather than something that informs you.
1: Uh, i think t- uh, television uh, news media is is the more is a very destructive uh, <laughs> uh, uh, force right now because it is actively playing uh, a a role to what do you say to be dis- dismissive of uh, any kind of constitutional values that we should be careful of any kind of democratic wa- values that we uphold any kind of pluralistic a society that uh, that should, uh, you know, uphold. The television media is actively working to destroy destroy all these values. And which is why I think some serious action or some serious uh, introspection needs to be done.
0: Right. Um, yeah, one thing that I'd also like to ask you is that even though we've talked about um, TV media and, and like a prop consensus among at least my age group is that none of us watch it anymore but there's Mm -hmm. still such a a, such a large majority of the people who actually do consume it and is it just because it's it's easy to consume is it because it's like why why
1: is it See, there is also, and There is also a class character to it. The, the people who are not consuming TV news are the people who have moved to web platforms,
0: right.
1: who have uh, constant access to internet, who have constant uh, resources to keep, uh, uh, you know, keep affording uh, web-based things. So there, there's a clear class character to it also. So a lo- and a generational thing as well. So people are can access television for a much less value, uh, much less cost, than they can access things uh, online still. And the kind of accessibility that TV still has in this country, a lot of remote corners in this country still don't have internet access. So that is one part of it. And second part also is that uh, now... Anything that comes on television is also online. So people may not be sitting in, in front of a television and watching things. But the same television uh, news clips are circulated online on social media pl- platforms, on Instagram, and Twitter. So you do end up watching it. Right. You do end up watching some some viral interview of somebody on YouTube. You do end up watching it. So I don't think you don't, it's not people don't watch any longer. I think people across sections are watching it. Right. And they're watching it because, they're because first, uh, it's not news any longer. It is a lot of infotainment. Like I would say that there is a lot of drama and entertainment uh, value to it. And also it is in sync with the kind of majoritarian politic political atmosphere around us. Right. So you do feel if you are uh, insecure about the kind of, Uh, situation like job situation uh, in terms of education you're feeling all of that you do want to feel part of a community and which is why you do end up uh, uh, you know uh, becoming part of this majoritarian community because that is the order of the day so till the time very basic things are not resolved for example the you know the surety that i even if i struggle hard uh, and manage to reach College or higher education, I will get a job and I will be able to make an independent life for myself, which is not based on exploitation on the basis of my class, caste, or gender. Till the time these things are not resolved, this kind of major- majoritarian propaganda on TV will continue because you do want to eventually be on some side and have people backing you. Yeah, I don't know if I'm making sense here, but just I to me it seems like that. Yeah, you're making perfect sense. Um, Yeah, one
0: thing that we talked about, a depressing picture, but as we're coming to sort of the end of this, I also want to look at what, in your opinion, has been good coverage of of these issues and, and like at least individuals and organizations which are sort of bringing us the kind of coverage these issues deserve.
1: Uh, I would say, and I've always said this, that uh, there are no, uh, first of all, no coverage should be followed because a certain journalist is reporting it, whether it's me, whether it's somebody else. I think, uh, and even with organizations, uh, no organization is doing foolproof work right now. So I would say that in terms of issues, there are always people, local news organizations, which maybe 50% of it may be something that is coming out of some kind of slant, but they still report on local issue. So at least there are some facts. So I think that it's anybody who's interested in news or following what is happening around them or wants to be just a conscious citizen. I think it's very important to read in local languages and read local newspapers that that give you far more information and context about, you know, whatever you're interested in, whether it's caste, whether it's class, whether it's the economy or anything else, Mm. You, you get a very clear picture based on facts, from those local newspapers so I think it's it, they are the ones that are actually doing a lot of good work and especially reporters in, in, in remote areas reporting from their own communities they are the people who are actually taking the risks to get information out there so it is up to us also to look at that more than what is coming in our faces.
0: Right, Um. now like, I'm just going to ask you a couple of light personal questions. Mm-hmm. Were you ever part of your own college journalistic journey? Because we're a college newspaper, so we're always interested in um, people like you and people who've been part of like, say, college journalism. And what are your hopes for that?
1: So uh, at an undergraduate level, I was in Miranda House, Delhi University, but we didn't have a journalism course there. I was an English honor student, but I was part of the uh, college magazine editorial board. Yeah. Uh, uh so i did yes yeah, so i was part of it and it was very interesting because uh just to be able to get the anecdotes and the stories or the testimonies of the students and what they were facing at that very point and get them uh and to curate them for the magazine which is distributed everywhere else i think that was uh, extremely special because uh college is also a space i've always said this that once you're done with school college is also a space that gives you uh, exposure to many things which are also beyond the classroom and uh, that is that is also a part of the what do you say foundation years of the kind of person you become later in life so that way i think a college magazine or any kind of college uh, you know uh, editorial uh, kind of what do you say uh, platform makes a lot of difference for for Uh, students to explore, to express themselves, to truly understand that uh, by debating in public or even taking the risk to put their opinion or to put their findings in public Mm -hmm. may have a good impact. So to just get that confidence, I think that uh, a college editorial uh, platform is extremely important. Okay.
0: One last question. This is something I person you wanted to include, was Mm -hmm. uh, if you had to recommend a couple of books to us and a couple of movies, uh, they can be documentary, commercial, fiction, non-fiction, anything, what would your top five
1: be? This includes everything.
0: Yeah, like, I mean, I just said top five because it sounds cool, but anything.
1: (laughs) Uh, I would say... uh, let me say so there is a book called uh, the inner Court, courtyard and it's uh, it's stories by indian women and it is it was edited by L- lakshmi Holstrom and i think that's a good book to read because there are a lot it has translations of uh, short stories by indian women writers and it does if you truly want to understand the gender dynamics across the country i think that truly really helps you understand because these writings directly from the women from those communities. So I would, I would recommend that. I would also recommend uh, seeing like a feminist, a book by Nivedita Menon. Uh, Then I would recommend a book called uh, Trickster City. The book is again, writings from the belly of the metropolis and basically uh, Delhi. So lots of people. Uh, in migrant communities in Delhi have written these stories and they have been translated. So, Tixter City is a good one to read. Uh, then films, I would say, I always say this, who watched this film called Fandry? Uh, uh, it's a Marathi film. Yeah. Uh, so, so the, how how many is that? Four. Yeah. And uh, the fifth one could be... Uh, uh, the fifth one could be isma Chukta's, uh biography okay in my yeah in your in my own words i think it's called and that's really also fantastic and I'm, uh, like because it tells you what a woman uh, writer who is not writing according to the conventional standards of how a woman should write in independent india how she broke all those conventions and battled all of this so that that to me personally is very uh inspiring and also it's very entertaining so it's not like <laughs> really some <laughs> so yeah so these are my top five
0: okay thank you so much and for talking to us i mean i Thanks can see you. personally this was very um informative for me i really enjoyed it thank you so much um
1: Yeah, that's (laughs) what. Thank you so much, Sanya, for doing it. Really appreciate it for giving me this platform. Thank you.